Well, let me begin by saying good morning to each one. It is, of course, always a wonderful privilege to be able to assemble and to worship God together, and I'm so glad that he's given us that privilege this morning. It's good to have so many who are visiting with us as well, and let me just echo the welcome and the sentiments that have already been expressed and let you know that we're so glad that you've chosen to come and be with us today, and we hope that you will uh, be able to do so again uh, in the very near future. You, some of you, many of you perhaps, may remember that there was a time in which John Lennon imagined a world without God and without religion, and the reason why he imagined that world is because to him and perhaps to so many others it represented a utopian paradise of sorts. The problem, of course, or at least one of the problems with that is that those kinds of societies and those kinds of systems already existed and have existed throughout the history of our world. Societies and systems that exist without God, that is, and those have been anything but peaceful. We could think about the various uh, communist uh, dictatorships that have ruled throughout uh, the history of the world. We could think about uh, places and things that have gone on in the Middle East, perhaps genocide in various countries and various continents throughout this world, things that have been done in the name of an existence without God and without religion. And yet someone might say, wait a minute, doesn't religion do the same thing? After all, haven't you heard of the Crusades? Aren't you aware that there have been various acts of terrorism that have been committed in the recent past and throughout the history of the world? Various acts of terrorism that are committed in the name of a God of some sort or of a religion of some sort? What about all of the various human rights and other kinds of atrocities that have been uh, that have been uh, committed throughout history in the name of religion. How can we stand back and, and how can we say that it's inappropriate to wish for paradise and peace apart from God whenever those who claim to know God have committed acts throughout history that have been anything but paradise and peace? I want to submit to you this morning that that actually is a very valid question and it deserves a reasoned and a valid answer. And I also want to suggest to you this morning that the answer to that question is Christianity, New Testament Christianity. Because when Christianity, real, genuine New Testament Christianity, when it is understood and when it is applied in the appropriate way, then what we see is the religion of heaven. It is the religion that answers the needs or the questions that men have. It is the religion that meets the needs that people have. It is the exclusive means to heaven. It is the only true religion. Now I recognize that that's quite a bold assertion. And so what I propose for us to do this morning is to take a step back and look at the assertion and see if we can't reason our way through it and find it to be true. 
But as we do that, the first thing that we need to do is we need to talk a little bit about truth in general. We started this discussion last Sunday, but just a few more things I think need to be brought to mind as we're trying to understand this question about, well, how can we say that Christianity is the only true religion? Well, first of all, what is truth? How would we define it? Believe it or not, that's a more difficult question than you might imagine because throughout history, people have changed the definition. There was a time, for example, in world history in which whatever an authority figure said, be it religious or political, whatever that authority figure may have said would have been considered to be true. People trusted their word. But then as time went on and humanity entered into the age of enlightenment, people began to think on their own. And so they began to trust reason, but reason with a capital R, as if reason and philosophies of different kinds, that those things became the guiding forces that were to, uh, that, that humanity was to follow. And then after a while, science became the authority figure. Scientists began to define truth in terms of what could be empirically proven, and many still do today suggest that truth is to be found only in what can be tested, what can be demonstrated. But I want to suggest to you that that claim in and of itself drips with hypocrisy because even scientists depend upon reports and work that other scientists have done instead of themselves, which means they're not actually completely depending on things being empirically proven in order to assert truth. Today, many people, many people define truth by emotion. Truth becomes relative. Truth becomes relative to the time and to the place and to the situation. Truth becomes relative to the individual and how they feel and what they think. But the real definition of truth is basically this. Truth is that which corresponds to reality or that which corresponds to the facts. And uh, in your Old Testaments, you're going to notice that when you see the word truth or true in the Old Testament, you are looking at a word from the Hebrew scripture that literally refers to reality that is firm and that is solid and that is binding. So, for example, in Psalm 119 and verse 151, when the psalmist says that all of your words are true, what he's saying is that the word of God is a reality that is firm and that is solid and that is, and that is binding. When he says in the same psalm, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. Again, he's talking about that which is firm, that which is solid, and that which is binding. And in the New Testament, the Greek word really is basically the same. When the Greeks talked about truth, aletheia, as you may be familiar, they're talking about that which is real. They're talking about that which is certain. And there was even a sense in which that word would be used to describe that which is revealed and in the light as opposed to something that may be hidden in the shadows or in darkness, that which is knowable and demonstrable versus that which is unknowable and undemonstrable. So in Ephesians 4 and verse 15, when Paul says that we are to speak the truth in love, what he's talking about is speaking those things which are real and those things which are certain and those things which are firm and binding. 
When he says in Ephesians 4 and verse number 21, and listen closely to how he says this because it's important, and we'll come back to it later, when he says, the truth is in Jesus, what he's saying is that that which is real and certain and binding and open and uh, firm and solid, that is found in Jesus Christ. So the reality is that while so many of us may, and I say us in a collective sense as the human race, as so many of us want to try and, and change the definition of truth from time to time and throughout history based on whatever may be going on, the truth is that, that truth is that which corresponds to reality, it's that which corresponds to the fact, and it is objective That means that it is not relative. It is not subject to individual interpretation or or application. Truth is truth. It means also that it's universal, that it applies to all people and all times and in all places. And it's independent, which means truth is true whether or not I choose to acknowledge it. It's It's really easy to illustrate Think about just a simple math problem like 1 plus 1. We know that that equals 2. And 1 plus 1 is going to equal 2 objectively. It's not subject to interpretation. It just equals 2. It's true. It equals 2 universally. That's the same here as in every other part of the world throughout time. And it's it's independent of what I want or think or feel. I may not like that 1 plus 1 equals 2, but that doesn't change the truth. So truth is objective and it's universal and it's independent. But here's the problem. The problem is that we live in what is commonly called a post-truth society. You've probably heard throughout the last several years the term postmodernism, and that's also part of the society in which we live. Postmodernism is the denial of absolute truth. But post-truth takes it a little bit further. Post-truth actually was the 2016 Oxford English Dictionary Word of the Year. And here's how it's defined. Truth is defined relating to a situation, uh, post-truth rather is defined as relating to a situation in which people are more likely to accept an argument based on their emotion and their belief rather than one based on facts. And again, this is the 2016 Oxford English Dictionary Word of the Year, which is indicative of the fact that a good number of people throughout our world recognize that we now live in a time in which people determine what is right and what is wrong, not based on a rational and thorough examination of the facts, but rather based on how they feel and what they think. In a post-truth world, truth is whatever you want it to be. If you hear a news report that you want to be true, then it's true. If you want a moral point to be true, then it's true. If you want a religious conviction to be true, then it's true. But the problem with all of this is that it's hypocritical and that it's shallow and that it's illogical. Let me give you an illustration. Often questions of truth can carry sentences of life or death. For example, if you go to the doctor's office and the doctor sits down and he gives you a cancer diagnosis and he lays out for you the treatment plan for that diagnosis, what he's telling you is true. You have this condition and these are the medically demonstrated uh, methods that uh, that we can follow in order to treat that condition. And most people, if not all people, take that seriously. 
because they trust that what the doctor is saying is true. Whether or not they want it to be true, they recognize that it is. But then in the same breath, they can turn around and they can scoff at some scientific or medical truth about some other subject or some other area of life which they choose not to embrace. We are told often that we ought to respect what other people believe. And of course, we ought to respect other people. That's a major problem in our world, that people are not respectful and that people are not Christ-like in how they deal with one another. But what's really meant by respect another person's belief is don't challenge it and cause the other person to feel uncomfortable. And the reason is because we've created a society in which people are insulated and made to feel confident in what they feel, which generally means that they're insulated and made to feel confident in a lie. And so we've lost the ability to debate and to reason with others in a logical and a rational way without becoming hostile and ridiculous. Instead of being governed by facts, we're governed by feelings. And as this pertains to religion in general and Christianity in particular, taking a relative truth position is really an admission that I don't take what I believe seriously. Contemplate that for a moment. Often, the illustration is given of an ancient Hindu parable where there are a group of blind men who are asked to describe an elephant. One touches the trunk and compares it to a snake, and the other one touches the ear and compares it to a fan, and the other one touches its leg and says that it feels like a tree trunk, and the other one pushes on its side and says that it feels like a wall, and so on. And so the idea is that that all religions that exist in the world have some aspect of truth, but no one can claim objectively to be the truth. It's a common way that we might see things illustrated or see things explained. But I want to suggest to you that practically people don't really believe this. And here's why I know that. Because someone might say to our Islamic friends that Islam is a way to God and we respect your belief, but we expect you to have the same belief that we do on equal roles for women and the same views on same-sex marriage, and we expect you to agree with us on a number of other social issues. And that's hypocritical. Because it's impossible for us to say on the one hand that it's a way to God, and it's true for the people that embrace it, but on the other hand, to try and bind our convictions on them. If we say that truth is relative, and that everyone has a claim to truth, and that every religion is just one side of the same coin then how can we ever step our foot down and expect anyone to change their belief system about anything? But most importantly, if I'm going to claim that all religions are different sides of the same coin, what's really happening is that I'm doing harm to myself and showing that I don't value my own conviction. Here's what I mean by that. In John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's an exclusive claim. So if I claim to be a Christian, and I know that Jesus said, I am exclusively the way to the Father, John 14 and verse number 6, and then on the other hand, I say that some other world religion or religious system is equally valid then really what I'm saying is that I don't actually believe what Jesus said. And that's a problem. So let's stop for a moment then and let's 
Let's take a look at the exclusive claims and the exclusive nature of New Testament Christianity just by itself. Again, remember, we're trying to to answer the question, how can we say that Christianity is the only true religion? We've talked about the nature of truth and how, unfortunately, so many people want to define it as being relative to feeling and thought and so on, but there are so many problems with that, too many, that we uh, more than what we have the time to really discuss this morning. It can't be the case that truth is relative. A thing is either right or it's wrong, but it can't be both. So what about Christianity? I want us to recognize this morning that when we're talking about New Testament Christianity, we're talking about a religious system that leaves no room for doubt. That according to what Scripture says, Christianity is absolutely exclusive. Take, for example, Old Testament prophecy. There are over 300 Old Testament messianic and kingdom prophecies found in the Old Testament. They're all pointing toward one person, to the Messiah, to the Son of God, and to his work in establishing his kingdom. And in Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 10, the scripture says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's an exclusive claim. Because what it means is that those Old Testament messianic prophecies have no one else in mind other than whom? Other than Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 24 and verse number 44, Jesus, as he is on the road to Emmaus, the Bible says that he spoke to the, to the disciples that were with him and that he began to expand, to explain everything that was written about him from the law and from the Psalms and from the prophets. Again, the conclusion is that when we look to Old Testament prophecy, when we look to Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, what God was preparing and trying to do, Jesus says, that isn't talking about anyone or anything other than me. Then there's John chapter 1, verses 1 and following, where Jesus is described as what we might just say, the divine reality. Remember that when we're talking about the word truth, In the New Testament, we're talking about that which is real. We're talking about that which is binding. We're talking about that which is certain. And John begins, you remember, in John chapter 1 by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made in the beginning by Him, and without Him was not anything made. What has John said about Jesus? John has said that Jesus is eternal. John has said that Jesus is God John has said that Jesus, as the eternal God, is the agent of creation. And he'll say later in the same context that Jesus, the Word, became flesh. And he'll also say that uh, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Truth, reality, certainty. What about John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26? What did Jesus say about himself? Jesus said about himself in John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he were dead or though he died, yet shall he live again. We studied the seven I am statements of Jesus not too long ago, as you may recall. And remember that in the Greek text, that, that statement is emphatic. So the idea is, I am, I and no other and the resurrection and the life. Jesus is not leaving any room for for questioning in that. Mark chapter 2, verses 5 and following, there's an occasion in which Jesus is preaching. He's teaching in a house, and it's so crowded that you can't get in. 
And so there were some men who had a friend who was crippled, and they went up to the roof, and they, they lowered him down through the roof. Jesus, on this occasion, saw that the Pharisees and the scribes were mocking and, and, uh, and things in the room, and so he looked at him, and he said, your, son, your sins are forgiven you. And they said, who is this man? How could he blaspheme? No one can forgive sins, but listen to this, but God alone. And so Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I say unto you, rise up and take your bed and walk. What did Jesus do on that occasion? You see, they recognized rightly that only God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, has the ability to forgive sins. And so Jesus proved that he's him. Jesus proves his deity in that statement when he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, rise up, take your bed, and walk. What he's saying is, I am God. I have the power both to make this man walk and I have the power to forgive his sins. Only Jesus could claim that for himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, John 14 and verse 6. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we, listen to this, must be saved. Acts 4 and verse number 12. There are no suggestions in God's word. There are no suggestions in the New Testament that Christianity might be the way to the Father. None at all. Only objective and absolute assertions. The New Testament leaves no room for doubt. The Bible is crystal clear on this matter. Jesus is the Messiah sent from God to redeem all of humanity back to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 19. The claims of New Testament Christianity are absolutely, uh, are, are absolutely objective and absolutely exclusive. So finally then, here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. How can those claims be validated? How can they be proven? It's one thing to say and make an exclusive claim, but it's another thing altogether to prove it. Let's talk for just a few more minutes this morning about how we might go about proving and validating the exclusive claims of Christianity. How we might go about the process of examining the facts and coming to the conclusion that Christianity is the true religion. Now, we don't have time to dive too deep into any of these, but hopefully we can say enough about all of them, perhaps to pique our curiosity and help us to see the big picture. First of all, there's the reliability of the New Testament. You see, if I were looking, if I were trying to prove the claims of a religion, be it any religion, one of the first things that I would want to do is I would want to start by looking at its book. I want to start by looking at its claims. I want to start by looking at its doctrine. What is the historical background of the founding of the religion? What about the writings that they have? Are the writings historically accurate? Do they represent the facts as they really are? Do they try to hide something or are they completely transparent? What about this? Are they contradictory? Those are all valid questions and should be asked of every religion and especially Christianity. Well, what does the Bible say about itself? The Bible says that it's inspired of God, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16 and verse number 17. Every word of Scripture, the idea is of that passage, is breathed by God. 
But the thing about it is that God did not just say, he did not just claim inspiration for Scripture, but rather he included within Scripture what we might just call the marks of inspiration or the characteristics of inspiration. For example... The Bible, the New Testament in particular, is historically accurate. And that fact has been proven over and over again throughout the years. You might be interested to know, perhaps you've heard of this name before, a historian and archaeologist who lived long ago by the name of William Ramsey began as a skeptic. He looked at the book of Acts and he recognized that Acts is very specific in what it says, meaning it mentions specific locations of cities, geography points. It mentions specific dates and times and places. It even mentions specific rulers. And so the idea is that as we study the book of Acts, what we see is a great deal of information that can very easily be proven to be true or proven to be false. And so he began by looking at the book of Acts as a skeptic. He took the book and he went to the Middle East, and he began at the beginning, and he worked his way toward the end, and he proved fact after fact and statement after statement that is found in the book of Acts to be true. And so after a thorough investigation, he, he recognized the authenticity and the absolute inspiration of that book, and then by implication, the New Testament as a whole. There's also archaeological evidence like the Pontius Pilate inscription that was found in 1961 and the bone box of Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, that was found in 1990. These, along with scores of other archaeological finds throughout the last couple of hundred years, testify over and over again to the reliability and the truth of both the Old and New Testaments. There is the fact that no contradictions have ever been able to be found within God's word. There's scientific foreknowledge, which we talked about a few Sunday nights ago, or Brother May talked about a few Sunday nights ago. Things such as medical instructions that are found in the old law on dealing with death and disease, which ancient cultures who were considered at their time to be advanced got wrong. And yet the Bible got it right. So this is the first way of approaching New Testament Christianity. How can we prove its claims? Well, first, let's examine its documents. Is it true? Is it historically accurate? Are there any contradictions to be found? Can history and can archaeology and various other forms of evidence, can they substantiate what the Scripture says? And the answer is yes. Then there's what we might call the unique nature and the spread of Christianity. Throughout history, there have been many who have tried to compare or sought to compare Christianity with other religions like Buddhism, for example. But when you look at it closer, there really is no comparison. Let me illustrate. Jesus didn't claim to be a sage or a wise person or, a, or an answer, but rather he claimed to be the truth. He claimed to be God and he claimed to be the son of God. Another fact to consider is that Christianity is not spread by violence. New Testament Christianity, that is, is not spread by violence. And New Testament Christianity, unlike other, some other world religions, does not advocate sensual gratification in connection with eternal life or paradise. Christianity does not promote an escape from the world through aestheticism, but rather a conquering of the challenges of the world through faith. Christianity 
is a historical record that is unlike any other that is to be found in the world of religious books and beliefs and systems and material. For example, New Testament Christianity is based upon a Jewish Messiah who was nailed to a Roman cross. And as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to the Greeks, the uh, cross is foolishness, and to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To even contemplate one who claimed to be Messiah and one who claimed to be king and one who claimed to be savior also being nailed to the cross was something that was anathema to the mind of the person who lived in the first century world. It just simply didn't make sense. It didn't add up. In fact, the shame of the cross was so unbearable that many in the Gentile world wouldn't even discuss it. And yet we have an entire religious system that is based upon the fact of a Jewish Messiah who is nailed to one. But more than that, we have within the New Testament, within Christianity, we have a record that opens itself up to scrutiny. Do you remember, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul is talking about the resurrection, he first begins by talking about how Jesus was seen after his resurrection. He then names names. He lists Uh, a number, over 300 people, and he lists specific names of individuals who saw Jesus after he had resurrected from the grave. Now that's a pretty big deal because it opens itself up for scrutiny because some person who had a desire could very easily just go and look at that list and go find those people and say, hey, here's what Paul wrote about you. Can you tell me if it's true? You're not going to find that in any other religious system or writing. Later on in the same chapter, the Apostle Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, and if Jesus has not raised, then that means we are of all men most to be pitied, and we're, if I can paraphrase, wasting our time. He has opened himself and Christianity up to being criticized and to being proven false. And search as you may, you're not going to find that same thing in any other religious text or system that exists in the world. But while on the subject of resurrection, it is, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the foundation upon which Christianity is built. If Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, then again, as the Apostle Paul said, we are of all men most miserable. If Jesus is still in the grave, then that means that Christianity is a lie and that it's a hoax and that we have no business believing it. But what do the facts say? What does the evidence say? It is a fact that the tomb was found empty. Now we can read that as a fact in the New Testament, which again, as we began this examination of the evidence, we first started with the question of whether or not we can trust the New Testament. But if we prove that that we can trust the New Testament, then that means that we can trust it when it says the tomb was found empty. But it wasn't just the New Testament. As we looked at a couple of Sunday nights ago, there are various other resources, various other sources, both who are um, who are looked favorably in the ancient world toward Christianity, and those, both Jew and Roman or Gentile, who hated Christianity. And yet, both of them would write and would say, "Yes, Jesus died. Yes, he was crucified on the cross. Yes, he was buried in a tomb. And yes, his body is gone, and we have no idea where it is." 
In fact, you remember in the, uh, in the book of Matthew, Matthew records by inspiration this um, meeting that exists or that, that happens between the Jewish leaders and between the Roman leaders, and they concoct a plan in which they say, here's what you're going to do. You're going to tell everybody that the disciples stole his body. There are still people today who would suggest that that's the case, and yet the Bible tells us that that's exactly what the reaction of the enemies was the day that it happened. And the reason is because they knew the fact, they knew that he had risen, they knew that his disciples hadn't stolen the body, but they had no idea how they were going to confront resurrection. Here's something else to consider. There's the issue of testimony, both written and verbal testimony, of eyewitnesses who claim to have seen the risen Lord. We talked about that a minute ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It could have been easily challenged. But then there's simply the existence of Christianity as a whole. Think about this for a moment. We're living in the, we're living in the year 2020. We're over 2,000 years after the cross. We're over 2,000 years after the life and the death of Jesus and his resurrection and ascension into heaven. And there have been no small number of attempts throughout history from that time until now to try and extinguish Christianity and try to, uh, try to prove it to be false. And yet it continues to grow. Why is that the case? But more than that, we read about, uh, we read historical records both in the Bible and in extra biblical -biblical sources about thousands and thousands of people throughout history who have believed so strongly in the faith of Christ Jesus, who have believed so strongly in the resurrected Lord that they were willing to literally change change their lives, leave their family and friends behind, and die for him. Are we really expected to believe that that many people would be willing to give something uh, would be willing to give so much up for something that they knew was a lie? Are we really expected to believe that the 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 religion of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Messiah of God, would continue to be around even today and to be as large as it is if it were all based upon fiction, if it were all based upon a hoax? Certainly that would be unreasonable. So now we're right back to where we started. How in the world can we say that Christianity is the only true religion? Again, I remind you that it's a valid question and it deserves a valid and reasonable response. But in reality, it is a two-part question. The first part is, well, what is truth anyway and how can it be demonstrated? And the second part is, how do we know that the claims of Christianity are actually true. Truth is objective. Truth is universal. Truth is independent of desire or or feeling. And truth can be demonstrated. And the truth of New Testament Christianity can, and let me say this, must be demonstrated. I mentioned a while ago at the beginning of our lesson that we have created a situation in our culture where it's very difficult for two people who disagree on a matter to sit down and uh, to discuss and to debate the matter in a rational, in a logical, and in a way which is characterized by goodwill. Instead, we, we uh, launch out at each other, and people, people generally can't stand to have their feelings and their belief systems challenge and so it's an emotional reaction instead of a rational one 
May that never, ever be said of New Testament Christians. God made us with a mind. God created us with a a mind, with reason, with the ability to think, with with the ability to rationally sift through evidence. And that's what God expects us to do. God expects us to be able to look at his claims, the claims of New Testament Christianity. He expects us to do so in a rational and reasoned way. And he expects us to examine the evidence and then to reach true conclusions that are based on that evidence. That old thing about Christianity being a blind leap in the dark is false. God never expected anyone to believe in anything that he didn't provide rational evidence or rational reason to be, uh, for which to believe in it. So we not only must recognize that the claims of New Testament Christianity are true and can be demonstrated to be so, but we have to be dedicated to a rational search for and a love of the truth. And we have to be willing to accept and apply the conclusions that truth will so naturally produce And we have to do so with the right disposition, the right heart, and the right attitude. Because we live in a world, we live in a world that is overwhelmed with sin and with its power. And the charge given to the church of Jesus Christ is to be a light into a a world of darkness. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 16. To preach the gospel to every creature. Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 16. May God help us to answer it. This morning, the Lord's invitation then is going to be extended. And it may be that there's someone here today who is not a Christian. Maybe you'd like to know more about how to become a Christian or about what being a Christian is all about. You know, it would be our privilege to to take time to sit down and to open up God's word and to answer those questions. Maybe you know what you need to do and you're just ready to do it. You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John 8 and verse 24. And you're willing to repent of your sins, Acts 13, uh, excuse me, Luke 13 and verse 3. And confess your faith, Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. And be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 22 and verse 16. Let us help you to do it. This morning, if you're a Christian and perhaps you're thinking about your life and you're thinking about some things that are not as they should be, can we help you to make those things right? Whatever needs you might have, we invite you to come and let them be known while we stand and sing the invitation song together.